Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. For tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome Don Engber, founding director of the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering and professor at Harvard to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Godbon. Uh, Don, if you will, can you share a brief intro with us to kick things off? I've been at Harvard for 37 years. I started as a postdoc, moved up, worked for 25 years at Children's Hospital, cell biology, angiogenesis, cancer research, mechanobiology, and then in 2009 became the founding director of the Wies Institute, which I helped conceive of and launch. And since then, I've been working across many areas. I, I guess I have my whole life across engineering, biology, translational medicine, micro technologies, nanotechnologies, you name it. So basically I'm, I always said I'm sort of a safety position that I can get involved in anything. I like the creative process. To help maybe tie that journey together for our listeners here, what's been the North Star, if you will, aligning all your work? Well, since I was a child, I've always been interested in how things work and I quickly learned that that's what science is, although most people don't think of it that way. My high school uh, guidance counselor told me I, I scored off the edge in the mechanical reasoning part of some exam, and they, they said I'd be good as an air conditioning uh, mechanic or expert. But mechanical workings of things uh, have always been the way I look at things, how things work physically. And so I would say the North Star for me has been the idea that mechanical forces and the physicality of living systems is absolutely critical for their function. So if you like the idea that structure and underneath it, mechanical forces um, dictate function rather than function dictating structure. And one fun question we've asked uh, a few of your colleagues of the beast here now from George Church to Jim Collins and others, and it had some fun answers and a varying array of answers here. It comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. As we look to the work at the Wies Institute and the future you're inspiring here, can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? And I tell this to my students that science and technology development are like a mathematical progression. If you get a feel for the flow of things through history, you kind of know where they're going. You don't know specifically, but you can, in fact, have a feel for where things are moving in the future. At the Wies Institute, we invent the future by bringing together the world's most you know, creative and quirky, I would add, scientists and engineers, along with experts who come from industry. So they have entrepreneurial experience and product development experience so that we not only uncover understandings of science that will enable future technology development, but we actually have near-term impact. So we invent the future by creating a, a novel innovation model for technology development and translation at the Wies. We actually created a structure to do that. Excited to dive more into that model, that structure here. I'll pass it off to Chris to kick it off for our first topic. 
Don, you are the founding director of the Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard, which has been recognized as the world's leading research and translational institute focused on engineering. Can you walk us through the founding of the Wyss? Sure. Although we're focused on engineering, I would say most of our faculty are in departments that are not engineering. What we really have founded is an institute that's based on transdisciplinary research without walls. The founding of it started when I was asked to, to co-chair a committee with Dave Mooney, who's also one of our faculty now, uh, to envision the future of bioengineering across Harvard and all of its hospitals by the provost of Harvard at the time. What we realized is that engineering has transformed medicine and the industrial world manufacturing, for example, by taking engineering principles and trying to confront those problems. We were tasked with thinking about the future, like 30 year ahead type future. And I think what we, we saw was that we already uncovered a huge amount about how nature builds, controls, and manufactures from the nanoscale up. And that, you know, most funding agencies like NIH, NSF, focus on how little we know, but the fact is we've uncovered a huge amount of information. And so we thought the future is flipping the paradigm on its head when it comes to engineering, which is now to leverage biological principles that we've uncovered to develop new engineering innovations. And I had actually developed concepts for institutes before that that never went anywhere. One was a biomimetics institute, one was a biocomplexity institute. And so I kind of merged those into a core with this sort of concept. And then Dave and I pursued a, a, a path that leveraged shoe leather, we called it, which is we walked to people's offices. We met with faculty in every department at Harvard and hospitals that are Harvard affiliated in other institutions in the Boston, Cambridge region. And everyone got excited about this idea, which I call biologically inspired engineering. It's not bioengineering. It's, it's not biomedical engineering. It's really something totally new. I've never really had a formal engineering you know, course in my life. George Church is a geneticist. George Whitesides is a chemist. So we weren't all engineers, but the idea was to engineer the future, basically. And the people I pulled together, and I pulled a few and they pulled others, really were people that already were not your conventional member of each scientific field. They already were innovating, collaborating across disciplines, breaking boundaries, and were sort of uh, mavericks in their own way. And I felt like, in, I think one reason we were successful is that everyone had something to prove that our way was powerful, even though people in our own fields thought we were a little strange. Like I'm a PhD in cell biology and I have an MD, but I was doing engineering and, and mechanical forces on cells and working with micromagnetics and microchip manufacturing techniques. And biologists just could never understand what it was that I was doing. George Church, a geneticist by training, was building equipment for genome sequencing and instrumentation and massively high throughput systems, not your classic geneticist. So we got this group of people together and we developed this vision and we were able to get uh, what was then the single largest gift in Harvard's history from Hans Jörg Wies for $125 million. Harvard also contributed to that. And key to the concept was this was, this was not just a discovery engine, this really was a translation in focused institute in that the gift was only for five years and it was dependent on us meeting measures of success that would show near-term impact. So that means that even though we're a part of Harvard and we're not in any school, nor do we report to any dean, we're actually a separate 501c3, sort of a subsidiary of Harvard, so like I report to a board of directors. Our measures of success included you know, academic ones being world-leading scientific publications and reputation and recruitments, but more importantly, what was novel was uh, the IP portfolio. We generated corporate licenses, startups, and collaborations with industry and products in the pipeline in five years, which we did. And then we were able to double that gift and then triple that gift five years after that. Now, we did that by creating a unique innovation model where we blended in staff who had 10, 20, 30 years in product development experience 
with our students and fellows and faculty. They're not running cores, they're actually parts of teams. And we also brought in strategic intellectual property attorneys on staff who are not writing patents, but providing strategic input. So that is how it got started. And I could go into where it has grown over time, but, but that's how it all got put together. And you've begun to touch on this. In your role as founding director, what was the culture you sought to create for the VIS? Oh, I remember George Church came to me and I was asking like what where his interest would lie. And he's described this project and this project and this project. And then he said, I have this like really wild idea, but you know, it's like really risky. And I said, I don't want to hear about anything else other than that wild idea. Cause he lit up when he talked about it. It, it was like, it's really like a kindergarten for the world's leading scientists and engineers. You get to play. We still raise most, you know, half of our funds come from grants. And it's not like we give faculty a lot of money in any way, shape or form. It's all about people. And so the people that we populate it with are to interact with them doesn't cost anything uh, to any individual investigator. That half of the Institute is really supporting people because that's what it always comes down to that defines success. So we brought the best scientists and engineer faculty who bring the best students and fellows, but we also get these incredible people from industry that match the needs of where we're trying to go. We also have our own business development team separate from Harvard's Office of Technology Development, although we also pay for people there who sit on our site and work hand in hand with them. But we work a little bit differently. Our business development is much more like in a startup where we develop relationships, we nurture relationships with other companies, with investors, and, and we experiment by innovating new models. And so the culture is one of experimentation, risk-taking, failure is fine. It's what it's all about. We focus we take a sort of pastor's quadrant approach, much like DARPA, where I tell people in the labs or faculty when they're coming, if you want to work on, let's say, some medical problem, and you're proposing to do an NIH type project where you're mapping out signaling pathways, that's not appropriate for the VIS. That should go into your academic lab. But if you have a, that same problem and you've identified like a, a specific need and you're trying to develop a solution to that need. And part of it may involve doing some signaling work. That's absolutely fine. So Pastor's Quadrant is really being problem focused. So that was key for the VIS and an environment where you work collaboratively. So from the very beginning, all funding was provided to build out what we called our enabling technology platforms by providing funds to a major visionary in an area like George Church in, in synthetic biology, or in genome engineering, you know, or Dave Mooney in nanomaterials or others in their respective areas. And that pot of money, they could really decide how to use that, but it had to be supporting other faculty in collaborative ways, trying to develop enabling technologies. And by enabling, I mean, that would enable the whole field. So for example, in synthetic biology, I remember there was a meeting with George Church, Jim Collins, Pam Silver, and who are our faculty in that area in the beginning. And they very quickly said that one of the challenges in the field was synthesizing longer and longer DNAs less and less expensively. So one of the first things that was started was faster, quicker, cheaper DNA synthesis, as opposed to DNA sequencing, where the focus was on before that. And George was a leader. In, and, and that ended up being some of the IP that came out of the beast. And George, I remember saying that these platforms should be cores that generate other cores. So that kind of capability now anyone could use at the Institute before it was commercialized. I developed these human organs on chips, which are microfluidic culture devices to replace animal testing. And that's now a capability that can, can be used at the Institute as well. And we, we're doing this with artificial intelligence and machine learning based strategies for drug repurposing and discovery. And now we're making that available to, to, to everyone across the Institute. So we created one, a culture that was um, collaborative, adventurous, risk-taking, but focused on problems. And within this problem-focused culture, you also set up a very unique model for technology innovation, translation, and commercialization. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I always, we, we describe it in terms of an innovation funnel. The broad part of the funnel 
is what I always say is the, describe as the skunk works of academia. I mean, nobody does it better than faculty at places like Harvard and MIT and our collaborating institutions like all the Harvard hospitals. But we usually work with funding from NIH and NSF, which are small little grants, and we get a bunch of them. And it's the spaces between grants where we can play. If you've already got students and postdocs funded and you have some supply money and you're doing aims on grant one and aims on grant two, those students and postdocs, they can play without even telling you and start exploring you know, new ideas. So the first thing we did was to provide funding, not a lot of funding, enough for maybe two students and fellows to each of the core faculty, where we said, you, you, you can just basically pay for these students and fellows and they can do anything that you can imagine in, bio, in, the, in the broad space of biologically inspired engineering. And so that kind of turbocharges the skunk works, if you like. And people always ask, like, how do we choose projects? In the, in the, on the left side of our funnel, the early part of our funnel, it's just a self-organization process. We just let it happen. The key is how you then harness the, the, the ideas that are bubbling out. And so the first thing we did is we, 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 we developed platforms that I, I mentioned earlier, enabling technology platforms in different areas. And, and they started to populate with staff from industry and also had some supply money to seed ideas and get some technical staff. We developed core facilities, all of which are free for anyone who's at, at the V's. But probably one of the most important things we did and novel things we did is not only did we teach our, our, all of our staff to, to submit reports of invention, ROIs, early, in the process from grad students up. We hired our own strategic intellectual property attorney who is housed at this Institute site full-time, had a broad background in industry, companies that were in many different areas. And so he actually and his team review every report of invention and they'll provide feedback, let's say to a graduate student that says, um, great idea, not patentable. However, if you did this, this, and this, it could be hugely valuable. So. What happens is that affects the path, affects the, the experimental design so that it's on the shortest path towards impact from the very beginning of projects, not after someone spent years working on something. Now, that graduate student will then often reach out to members of our community who worked in that area and say, what do you think? And they may say, great idea, patentable, but some other company is already working on something that's even better and cheaper in which case that project may be shelved. Or they may say, wow, that's a fantastic idea. What about this, this, and this? And what happens is a team self-assembles. Their salaries are already paid. They already have some supply money and they could access a little bit more through the platforms. They, th th there was no grant. They didn't have to wait for months to write and get a grant reviewed. They just start moving. And we, you know, we have a machine shop that has three full-time staff where you can build anything, CNC milling, medical grade materials, cut through stainless steel with water jet cutters, 3D printers, free. And so you could just start prototyping and, and, and building and testing. And our labs are such that we have an incredible range of know-how in the same site. So we have molecular biologists, geneticists, cell biologists, physiologists, clinicians, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software, uh, you know, programmers, uh, computer scientists, all next to each other. You could build a device and have cell biologists culturing cells in it, and then have somebody work on new imaging to integrate in it and have someone write software to run the whole thing, all at the same site. We're not set up by departments. So it's basically a, a free-for-all in the left part of our funnel, but it is I always say on the edge of a chaos, which is where really all the interesting things happen in nature. Okay, so if the project starts evolving and it can now become a platform project, which means there's some support from the platform and it's still freestyle. But we, over the years, we've instituted programs we call validation projects and institute projects, which is more of our translation structure. And that's what we call the right side of our funnel as the funnel narrows. And here we do have short couple of page applications. And we're, what we're trying to do is see 
teams of young people self-assemble. This is not faculty driven. This is really young entrepreneur driven. And these could be students, fellows, staff, you know, faculty are involved, but it's, but we're really looking for the teams of people who are passionate, who have a vision, who may take a company out, for example, or it could be licensed, but usually want to take a company out. And in that application, the, the goal of this is to de-risk technically and also identify sort of a first use application. It may not be the final one, but at least it gives focus. And they have to propose timelines and have milestones. And we provide funding on top of what is already they already have from grants and from the Institute to uh, carry out that de-risking. And we have many of these that have gone so far in one to two years that they've startups. And then our last narrow part of the funnel we call Institute Projects. And here, you might have found a first use application. You have done de-risking. And I should say the, the applications are not reviewed by faculty. They're reviewed by our business development team and also some people from Harvard and sometimes an outside expert. So this is no longer like academic, if you like. And then the Institute projects are, it's been pretty well de-risked technically. We're beginning to reach out to investors, venture capitalists, and we're beginning to get feedback that basically we get from multiple entities that triangulate in and say, this is exciting, but it needs some commercial de-risking, maybe a little bit more technical de-risking, but often commercial de-risking. But if we... But, and, and they delineate what they're looking for. And if we triangulate from multiple entities with the same criteria, that's what the Institute project is requesting, funds to do that de-risking. They, they have to have quotes and, and, and letters from investors saying, yes, we're interested, but we'd like to see this, this, and this. And that could involve interviewing 40 physicians around the world about a diagnostic, which we've done, or it could be reducing the cost of manufacturing, of a vibrating shoe insole that gives elderly the balance of 20-year-olds, which we did. Or it could be a phase one human clinical trial for a cancer vaccine, which we did where we co-funded it with our partner institution, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, because we had a clinical champion at the time, Glenn Dranoff, who would work with Dave Mooney at the Institute on a cancer vaccine. And that's now licensed, that vaccine is licensed in Novartis and actually we just did a new spin out where with, with that same technology for infections and, and other cancer subsets. We also, in those applications, you could request funding to hire people that would be at the V's, but have industrial experience, entrepreneurial experience, and may end up taking it out as a CEO or CTO. So you can actually build a team and test out that team at the institute. Now, this is all academic, where there's no conflict of interest yet, no company has been formed. These people come on to the VIS as Harvard employees, visiting scholars, and therefore all IP is owned by Harvard. It's only when we do the licensing agreement that people have to move out. So when you do a startup, you'll have to focus, 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 and you have to really choose your capital investment carefully or you die, because if, if you have to change, you're, you're, you're dead. We don't have that problem because we have a huge capital investment that's going to be used academically, but these pro later stage projects use them as well. If a project hits a, a major hurdle, we could bring new faculty and we could bring new technologies in, we could change direction. So it, we really can de-risk and mature these, these teams, these technologies, de-risk them so that when it goes out, it, it's at a much more advanced stage. Unless the investors see it ready to go and they have their own team they want to build, which we're perfectly open to do. But some of the institute projects have gone out with significant pre-money valuation and teams of 19 people. When I did emulate Morgan Chip Company, 19 people went out overnight. The CEO, CTO, and CSO all had worked with me for four years as a team already, along with the other 16 people. So that's basically the, our innovation model, the technology funnel. And at the right end, our business development team, along with Harvard's Office of Technology Development help basically build those relationships and Harvard does the negotiation of the licensing terms, the OTD at the end. To, to take things a step further, with both human and global health as pressing challenges humanity is facing today, how do you think about the visa's role in biologically inspired engineering for both sustainability and health? The nice thing about the visa is we're not a company. And, and so we just want to have impact. We can support technology development 
even if it may not be lucrative in the long run, as long as it has positive impact for humanity. And so uh, we have a program we've been supporting internally called uh, Aquapulse that actually came out of my organ chips with microfluidics. We did stuff in infectious disease and we were basically uh, integrating electrodes into these. And we found out that we have an incredibly efficient method for killing bacteria. And then we realized that this could be useful for purifying water. It works with turbid water. It can be very small and portable. And this is something we're in the process of hopefully licensing to a major water company, but it it would be largely for low resource nations, although they think it would be useful globally, actually. But we did that never thinking it would be a major startup or even we didn't really think it would have that much interest for mainstream America, but it really was for low-resource nations. We, other sustainability examples are developing a robot that can put in walls to prevent water erosion and cooling systems for buildings that really are, are, are built into the structure and low cost. There's not a lot of venture capital in the building industry, and they really are focused on cost and near-term turnaround. So it's really hard to work in some of those areas, but we have been doing it anyway. In the human health area, I have multiple grants from the Gates Foundation, as do um, multiple other faculty, David Wall, George Church, and others. We are working on leveraging our advanced technologies. We're using our human organ chips, for example, where we could grow complex human microbiome in, in direct contact with the human cells and tissues in an organ relevant context to help uh, the Gates Foundation select probiotic consortia that are gonna move to clinical trials for treatment of vaginal dysbiosis in Africa. And vaginal dysbiosis is is something we think of as not a big problem, but it turns out it's a major cause of um, premature labor and and infant death. And so it's actually a huge problem. It's also also associated with increased HPV, HIV infections. We are working with Gates on environmental enteric dysfunction and looking for therapies, which is malnutrition in in the third world. Other groups at the V's are working on tuberculosis diagnosis with point of care types of technologies. So that is great when you can find an application, a problem that is huge and that a lot of companies are not going to go after because it's low resource nation. We can do that. Bringing things back to your own work, you've published over 500 papers and have over 170 patents covering everything from micropatent cultured substrate research tools to therapeutics for cancer and pandemic viruses. Today, we'd like to focus on your seminal work with organ on a chip technology that you've touched on several times. To start, how do you define organ on a chip technology? And when will you know your vision for the technology has been realized? Organs on chips are microfluidic culture devices, which are the size of a computer memory stick. They're optically clear, made out of a flexible polymer, rubber-like material. Our devices contain two hollow channels less than a millimeter wide that are parallel and separated by a porous membrane. And what we do is we culture living human cells, often primary cells or, or, or from organoids or stem cells or, or taken from cadavers. And we can place cells from different tissues in each channel so we can recreate the tissue-tissue interfaces that basically define organ-level structure. So a tissue is a group of similar cells that provide common function. An organ are two or more tissues that come together, interface, and new functions emerge. And often one of those tissues is a vascular tissue or a blood vessel tissue. So we often have a blood vessels, endothelial cells in one channel interfaced with the epithelial cells of an organ like the lungs. To recreate the physical environment, we have little side chambers that we can apply suction. Every time we apply suction, it stretches. And when we release it, it comes back. So we can mimic the rhythmic stretching during breathing in the lung or peristalsis in the intestine and so forth. I like to describe human organs on chips as living three-dimensional cross-sections through a major functional unit of a human organ. So if our, our first chip, we call the human lung on a chip, it was really a model of the human lung air sac or alveolus. Later, we then built another model of the 
human lung airway. For each one, we have cells from the different regions of the organ, like alveolar cells versus airway cells. And we have human lung cells that are interfaced across this porous membrane that separates two parallel microfluidic channels, each less than a millimeter high. So we feed the cells through the vascular channel, just like in the lung. We have air over the cells, just like in the lung. And then we have side chambers on either side of these hollow channels where the cells live, where we apply cyclic suction. And the entire device is clear and flexible. And because the walls and the membrane the cells share is flexible, when we apply suction, they stretch. And then when we release it, they retract back. And we could do this at the same rate and rhythm as when we breathe in and out and our air sac expands and, and, and contracts. And we've done this now for probably over 15 different organs with small intestine, large intestine, kidney, glomerulus, the tubular part of the kidney, bone marrow, skin, and so on. And, and essentially what we're able to do is or recapitulate human lung or any organ physiology, as well as disease states, as well as responses to drugs, toxins, infections, and so forth. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. You first began working on organ-on-chip technology back in 2007 and published your first breakthrough in 2010. What led you to begin thinking about organs-on-chips? And can you walk us through some of that very early exploration of the technology? Actually, the story begins you know, much earlier. In my career, I mentioned that the North Star has been this belief that mechanical forces are as important as chemicals and genes in, in biology and development and cancer and, and diseases. I, I had been working on trying to demonstrate that, and I had been developing culture systems where I could control cell spreading or distortion by modulating interactions between cell and the substrate by modulating the extracellular matrix, which are the physiological adhesion molecules that cell attach to in our bodies. You could think of them like an egg carton on which cells exit. The extracellular matrix is the living cell egg carton. And cells bind to this and pull against it. And so if you have a rigid flat dish, cells will stick and spread and proliferate. But if you have a poorly adhesive dish or you have low amounts of matrix, they can't spread, they round and, and they don't proliferate. And in about 1990, I started collaboration with George Whitesides at Harvard because I was trying to figure out how we could unequivocally show that it's the shape distortion and not the amount of matrix binding sites that dictates whether cells grow or migrate or live or die. And this actually happened because grad students were in a bar together talking. The net sum is that I had this idea that we could create adhesive islands on the size of individual cells that were coated with a high density of matrix but would be surrounded by non-adhesive Teflon-like regions. And if I made a big circular island, cells would stick, pull against it, spread out and be a flat like a pancake. If I made a smaller island, it would stick, spread, but when it hit the Teflon region, it couldn't spread anymore, so it looked like a cupcake. And if I made a tiny island, I'd have a golf ball and a tee. But they all were bound to the same high density of matrix, which we knew down to matrix receptors and gave signals. They all had the same high density of growth factors in the medium that we knew would bind growth factors and stimulate growth. And the only variable would be stretch, if you like. And George Whitesides at the time had just come up with it, a really innovative way, an inexpensive way to make microchips for the computer industry using what he had called soft lithography and it, and it became known as microcontact printing. And, and I should say, the reason this interests me is because Computer microchip manufacturing offers control over features at the same 
nanometer to micrometer scale that cells and tissues live at. And George was able to control features like you were doing a microchip pattern instead of etching into silicon as the way the industry does with people in bunny suits and clean rooms. George was able to figure out that you could etch one silicon wafer in sort of the inverse shape in a clean room and then take it out and then pour a liquid polymer on it that would solidify and you could peel it off and you'd have a rubber stamp. It was an elastomer, it was flexible, so it was silicon rubber basically, optically clear. And then you could stamp chemical inks that would retain surface resolution down to 60 to 90 nanometers and print many chip patterns. And basically we adopted this to print extracellular matrix in those little golf ball shaped T's and circular islands that I talked about different sizes. And we had two science papers in 1994 and 1997 that not only you know, introduced micro patterning for cell biology, which is now an industry, but showed that in fact it was cell distortion and mechanical forces that dictated whether or not cells live or die. And later we showed migrate in particular directions, go into apoptosis, differentiate. And that paper was called Geometric Control of Cell Life and Death in Science. It was one of my highest impact papers, over 5,000 citations. That was the beginning of the path to organ on chips, because then George started to, to make microfluidic devices using the same technology. He was largely using them and others using them to sort of miniaturize instrumentation, do analytical types of things in chemistry. I worked for 25 years with Judah Folkman, whose claim to fame was angiogenesis and cancer, the idea that cancers could not grow unless they also stimulated new capillary growth. And so I worked in what is known as vascular biology. And to me, these little devices that had hollow channels where you could feed liquids through look like engineered microvascular networks. So we basically, organ chips basically combines those two technologies. The first organ on a chip, I called a spleen on a chip. It had no living cells in it, but it used the fact that microfluidic devices only have laminar flow. And if you can put two different color dyes in two different inlets, and the inlets come into, you know, those tributaries go into one big microfluidic river, believe it or not, the colored dyes don't mix. And that's because you have no turbulence if you're below about a millimeter in diameter, and those two flow right by each other. And I thought that would be an interesting way to flow blood and sterile saline next to each other and using magnetic particles physically pull pathogens out of blood. And long story short on that one, that is now, that led to a company uh, that is called BOA that doesn't use that configuration, but is treating sepsis in clinical trials right now. Now, that was one offshoot. So I call that a spleen on a chip because functionally it acted like an organ, a spleen by cleansing blood. And that was the first on a chip term I used in my grants. I went to a meeting in about 2006 or seven, where I heard Shu Takayama present work that he called a lung on a chip. Shu Takayama was a postdoc with George Whitesides and myself, we had a nature paper together with microfluidics and cells, one of the first papers of microfluidics, and just culturing cells in a microfluidic device. And Shu's lung on a chip presentation, again, at this time, it did not have cells. But what he did is he made a chip with channels the size of small lung airways, and he put liquid droplets through them. And when he did that, amazingly, these little devices made a noise that was exactly the same noise that I was taught in medical school to listen for through a stethoscope called the crackle that indicated that someone had pneumonia and fluid on the lungs. And we used to always ask the professor, like, what causes that noise? And they said, I don't know. Well, Shu just showed that it was small, probably mucus droplets going through this particular size airway. I thought that was incredibly cool. And his student, Dan Hutt, applied for a postdoc with me. And when Dan came to my office, I said, that is incredibly cool, but why don't we build a real living lung on a chip? My initial idea is because there's two laminar flows, George had shown you could deposit at the interface electrodes by having solutions that would cause precipitation of metals. I wanted to precipitate extracellular matrix and make a real natural extracellular matrix between the two channels and then put 
the cells of the lung air sac on either side of it, the blood vessel cell and the alveolar cell. We started doing that. We had some success, but it was not robust. And then Dan came up with the idea of engineering a, a flexible polymer membrane that we coat with matrix. And then the final thing is that we wanted to have breathing motions because mechanics is so important for me. And Dan actually really came up with this idea of these hollow chambers on the side. And that was the birth of the lung on a chip. Crossing over to the interface between science, engineering, medicine, and design and art. In 2011, your organ on chip technology was named one of the top 10 emerging technologies by the World Economic Forum and the Design of the Year by the London Design Museum. It is also displayed by the Museum of Modern Art in New York City for its permanent design collections. What is it like hearing that your organ on chip technology had been nominated for International Design Awards? It was a surprise <laughs> and it was, it was fantastic for me personally because my whole scientific career was launched by a aha moment I had in an art class, in a sculpture class. And so I've always been sort of crossing back and forth between the art design science interface. I was a scientist, but I, I, I had this experience where I saw what's called a tensegrity sculpture. And I, I realized that that's how cells and tissues and organs are built. And everybody thought I was nuts for most of my career. But I believed that art can inform science and vice versa. And so this was incredibly gratifying and validating. And after the first nomination, what were your thoughts on the intersection of scientific exploration and artistic design? My whole career, I've been invited to an in, in, innumerable art science interface meetings. This aha moment in art class really got me in, into the world of Buckminster Fuller because he, he coined the term tensegrity, which was the basis of this building system. And Kenneth Nelson was a sculptor who built these first systems. And I got to know Snelson. I, I got to participate in meetings where I saw people being innovative independent of field. It didn't matter what you called it. And there were artists and designers who were, were trying to design buildings that could shake off snow uh, like a dog shakes off rain. And that involved artists working with engineers and, and, and just letting creative freedom go where it will. I, I found that always incredibly exciting. I think they found exciting my story that being in a sculpture class led me to understand how cells are built at the molecular scale, even how proteins are built and kind of the natural architecture of life, as I called it in my Scientific American article in 1998. And so it was just validating and reassuring. And I think maybe helped me move to the next level in terms of, I don't know, appreciation, respect, recognition that there really is value to crossing the art science design interface and that we can take things from field outside of science and impact science in a positive way. Having thought about and applied these principles for so long, do you have any advice for students and innovators seeking to learn more about the principles of design thinking? I think the key is to not limit yourself to how you were trained. I, I always use the quote from Buckminster Fuller where he says, nature has no separate departments of biology, chemistry, physics, or art. And it's absolutely true, yet that's the way we're taught we're channelized and thinking silos. And so the way I really did it is I was at Yale as an undergrad and I stayed there doing an MD PhD. I was there 11 years. I knew every library. So I can go to every library. When I had a, this idea about mechanics being important in biology, first of all, I read biology from the 1700s on. And interestingly, I found that all of biology was explained in terms of mechanics up until about the 19 you know, 20, because that's where physics was before that time. And it was mechanics. And, and then I, but then I would read, you know, physics and I would read chemistry and I would read biology and I would read art and go to the art library. And, and if, and if you are focusing on a problem and you have some key words or key ideas and you can search them, you'll find that people in every field have a different perspective. And so it's by breaking through frames of reference that you get this totally new way of looking at things. And art and design is just one way of doing that, but it's really barrier crossing that it's all about and throwing yourself into things without thinking that you wouldn't understand or you don't know where to start. The way place to start is anywhere and just jump in. 
Thanks, Don, for a fantastic conversation today. To help wrap things up, a few rapid fire questions before we come to closing here. You've been an inspiration for so many listeners in our audience, and the work you were doing at the VEAS is nothing short of amazing here. We'd love to flip it around. Who inspires you and why? In my career, I've been inspired by particular people. I think what the common theme is, and people like Buckminster Fuller, Judah Folkman, who I was a postdoc with and, and worked with for 25 years. And, and, and I'll tell you a recent one was I, I, I spoke before Congress about the FDA Modernization Act, which is trying to change the wording so that instead of animal models, human advanced in vitro models like organ chips might be used to get drugs approved. And Jane Goodall spoke, she's 83 years old, and she was absolutely inspiring in terms of the beauty of her vision and doing science without using all of the precise scientific methods, but doing it based on passion and vision and coming at it by pursuing her own path. And I think all of these people were somewhat mavericks in their own way. And I, I think this idea of following your own path that if you see something that you believe can explain things that other people can't, you almost have a responsibility to follow that no matter how hard it is and how people attack you along the way. So all of those peoples were inspirational for me because I was attacked most of my career for what I was doing because it was outside of the norm. Thanks for sharing that segment with us, Don, and what an amazing future biotech holds and the work you all have done at the VEAS has been a huge catalyst in the innovation in the field today. As we look ahead to where the field's going, before we hop into that vision, help us understand what are the grand challenges facing us in life sciences over the next 30 years? The reality is that given the cost of medicine in the healthcare system, we're going to see the world transformed where medicine is done, diagnosis is done at home, or therapy is even done at home, basically moving out of the hospital into the home, into pharmacies. I think the capabilities now for using machine learning and AI combined with sophisticated advanced you know, biological tools are going to change the way healthcare is is, is distributed, organized, and, and received. So that, that that's at one level. I think at the biological level, there's still a huge amount we don't know. I think we have medieval approaches in surgery and for structural defects where we have prosthetics. I, I think the possibilities of promoting things that are regenerative, like let our body do it. 3D printing is really exciting now, but 30 years from now, could you induce limbs to entirely regenerate on their own? I think future challenges are where biology really gets out of medicine into sustainability, manufacturing. We're seeing that with synthetic biology. I think in the future, uh, I see self-assembly, which is the way nature builds everything. Hierarchical self-assembly being something that like right now at the VEAS, we have a thing we call molecular robotics program, where we're have self-assembling molecules like DNAs that can build machines that carry out, you know, specified functions. It's the very beginning of this, but I, I think we're going to build with biology as well as heal with biology. So I, I think those come to mind. As we flash forward now to biotech in 2050, Don, the vision you painted here, help us understand when these challenges are addressed, where will biotech be? I think the, that the, the model, the pharmaceutical industry model, we can see is already beginning to sort of cave in. They have a huge amount of money so they can buy adventurous small companies, but that's not where the discovery is happening. I think we're going to see more and more that this interdisciplinary approach or transdisciplinary approach um, where you identify the problem and you assemble together the right know-how, expertise, capabilities, and disciplines to solve it. You're going to see more and more. That's how the VEAS works. People come to us with a problem. We'll just bring this bizarre mixture of know-how that no one else could 
put together either at a startup or even in a pharma or biotech company because it, it involves so many different disciplines. I think you're going to see more of that to deal with these sorts of problems. I think cost is going to be a huge driver in the future. So not only thinking about doing things, tech, developing technologies that are powerful, but that are simple to manufacture and, and inexpensive to acquire and use. And that the public who, as we have learned through COVID, are not very well educated about science or technology and fearful of it, are willing to incorporate it into their lives. I think these are sort of challenges we see. In fact, that raises perhaps what's the biggest challenge for the biotech and industry and our community, which is education of the public so that they will accept these technologies that we develop and because we have failed. And this is something that you see scientists are very wary about talking to the press, yet we have seen the, the ramifications of that with COVID where people don't trust science, they're fearful. So uh, I, I think that's something we have to integrate into a future biotechnology world where there's much more openness in, in terms of communication and bringing the public along with us. Fantastic conversation today. Once again, Don, thank you for joining us. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our audience here? I think what I'm most proud of at the Institute and, and, and in many ways in my career is more than any single technology is that I think we've got our hands on a, a, a truly novel model for technology innovation and translation that crosses the academic industrial interface. There's, there's no better creative cauldron than academia. It has been for a thousand years, but there's always been this huge chasm between the two. And I, I, I think we figured out a way to bridge that valley and that's something that perhaps other places will do it differently, but I hope people look at what we've done and, and try to incorporate bits of it into their own systems because we need this desperately. We've touched on some exciting topics and projects, many different aspects of the beast in your career. How can our audience learn more about your work? Our website is probably... Uh, the best place about the Vs Institute, we've won three Webbies and multiple other awards. Even actually, we beat out biotech companies. Just search my name on, on Google and you will see the range of what we've done. Learning what we've done is, is not the hard part. Getting insight into how we work at the Institute is a little bit more difficult. I've, I've actually had publications on the Vs model itself that you could search for, but come visit. Thank you, Don, for an absolutely inspiring episode. We'll be sure to take you up on your offer to come visit there. Uh, I'm sure audience will be craving for more here. Very grateful for your time. Thanks once again for joining us. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.